Our scripture today is Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself an image in any form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Good morning to you all. I'm wondering if if anyone else uh, besides myself as a kid maybe looked around at your neighbors, looked around at your friends and thought, you know, our family is a little bit weird. Our family does things a little bit differently. I remember as a kid, I'd go, my best friend lived up the street from me. I'd ride my bike to go over and see him. And I could always usually expect his house is covered full of soft-baked Chips Ahoy cookie cookies and a fridge full of Dr. Pepper. For me, it was magical. It was wonderful. It was not like my house. It's not that we didn't have sweets, but the expectation night after night at my house was home-cooked, wholesome, and nutritious food, which was kind of weird, right? (laughs) And I, I even get to experience this as a parent. Now, recently, a few months ago, I was informed by our children, Christian and I were informed by our children that the art in our house is weird. Like, apparently, there's not a lot of uh, kind of melancholic, depressing Russian art uh, in, in Colombiana. That's kind of weird. We're at Mount Sinai, and, and God's beginning to lay out with the Israelites, what is this covenantal relationship going to look like? And, and what, what the Israelites are learning is that this is kind of a strange relationship, okay? They're going to do things differently than their neighbors, Uh, But what I want you to see today, what I hope you walk away with today, is seeing that this distinctiveness, this strangeness, even this weirdness, reveals to us the beautiful character of our God. So we're we're looking at the second commandment. I just want to kind of zero in on this commandment today. And it's known as the image commandment. Uh, The Israelites, a couple weeks ago, when we looked at the first commandment, they've already been told that there's to be no other gods before Yahweh. Okay, that, that already is going to set them apart from the other nations which would have had multiple gods. And now they're told something that also would have sounded strange. No images of God. Hey, this word image in, in Hebrew is pestle. It, it means some kind of physical object uh, such as a statue. This could be made out of wood. It could be made out of uh, stone. It could be made out of metal. But it's some physical object that would have represented the God and that could be worshipped. And the Israelites are told by Yahweh, you're not going to do that, Okay. Your neighbors, they do that. You are not going to do that. You're not going to bow down before these these idols, these statues. And not only that, you're not going to make a statue of me. And I think this is what would have probably sounded really strange, really weird to the Israelites. And there's even a part in Psalm 115 that it almost indicates that um, that Israel was taunted for this. It says this in Psalm 115. Why do the nations say, where is your God? Where is their God? It, you know, it's like the psalmist is imagining a visitor coming to the temple, the house of the Lord, and looking around and saying, you know, where is your God? This is just a big empty space. Where is the statue? And you kind of imagine the Israelites like, yeah, we, we don't do images of God in our house. It's a little weird. But why is this such a big deal? Why, why not a physical image? I think we get 
no physical images of, say, like another god like Baal. Like it would be a problem to bow down before a statue of Baal. But why not? Why can't the Israelites bow down before a statue of Yahweh? And now we're going to do a little speculation. We don't know for sure. But it probably had to do with something in how people in the ancient Near East used images of God. See, at the time, there was this understanding that, that a statue of a god or goddesses was, uh, in some ways, more than just a representation of that god. That in somehow that, that, that little piece of wood or a little piece of uh, bronze represented something of that god's reality. And I don't think this is quite as maybe foreign to our thinking as we might think. Um, imagine this. Imagine taking a photograph of someone you love. Imagine a photograph of your grandmother or your grandfather or someone you love. And imagine if I ask you to spit on that picture of your grandma, right? You feel within you at a visceral level a resistance to doing that. And I would say to you, hey, look, it's a piece of paper. You're not spitting on your grandma. This is not your grandma. This is a piece of paper. But something in you tells you, like, spitting a big loogie on your grandma's <laughs> picture is not okay, right? Like, somehow, that would be dishonoring to her. See, an image is, even for us, an image is kind of more than an image. And, and because of the way the images worked back then, uh, by bringing that God closer to you, you had the opportunity to manipulate that God, to get that God or goddesses to do what you wanted. So say, for example, um, you're a farmer, you're desperate for rain, you've got the option, uh, which, which the Huffmans don't have, you can drag that statue through your farm in hopes that you can bring about that rain, right, that we've, we've gotten and we've so desperately needed here, I know. And Yahweh is saying, like, doing things like that, like dragging a little statue through your fields, you can't do that. You can't manipulate me. Why, why is that? Well, because God is sovereign. I mean, think about it. I'm so thankful that, that God is not like some puppet in the sky where, depending on who in this room is pulling what string, that we're getting God to do what we want. Can you imagine how chaotic the world would be if God operated that way? But there's another problem beyond manipulation, and it's a lack of trust. See, if I can't trust that God will act on my, own, on my best interests, that God can't do that on his own, I've then got to take matters into my own hands. I've got to figure out a way to manipulate God to get what I need, to get what I want. And the problem with that, in the context of our story, is that God has already shown the Israelites that he is for them, that he has their best interest in mind. The Israelites should know by now they do not need to manipulate God, that he is unequivocally for them. He is He's on their side. He deeply cares for them. And they know that because, going back to this rescue from slavery in Egypt. Uh, think about it this way. Imagine I, I go home one day and I find one of my children, and they've got a picture of me, and they're kind of obsessively rubbing that picture, and they're kind of saying some kind of incantation to that picture. And I say to them, hey, you know, what are you doing? And it turns out that they believe that if they can kind of manipulate things just right, that I'm going to feed them dinner that night. I mean, one, that would be strange, right, to, to find your child doing that. But it would be painful as a parent. It would be painful because it would indicate to me that my child did not have enough faith in me, did not have enough trust in me, that, I, that they could expect to be provided for that evening, that I had their best interest in mind, that, that I didn't have this track record of every night making sure they had enough to eat. And then rather than coming to me directly and saying, like, Dad, I need some food, they had to resort to manipulation. You kind of start seeing why this is going to be a problem in a relationship if the Israelites have to resort to manipulation. 
See, it's not, that the, it's not that God is not open to hearing from the Israelites. It's not even that God is not open to being influenced by the Israelites. Okay, again and again, as we've seen in our story leading up to Mount Sinai, the Israelites have cried out for something, whether it's water or food or meat, and God has responded to that need. Okay? But going to prayer and God, communicating to God through prayer, petition, laying those desires out before God is very different than trying to manipulate God. Okay, we, we, like the Israelites, we don't get the option of manipulating God. Okay, God is not, uh, for us, a genie where if you can rub the bottle just right, like you're going to get God to do what you want. We get something so much better than that. We get a God who invites us to go directly to him in prayer and petition and to lay out our desires and hopes and needs, knowing and trusting that God has our best interest in mind. And why can we do this? Why can we do this with confidence like the Israelites? Because God has already unequivocally shown us through Jesus Christ that he is for us. He has our best interest in mind, that he can be trusted. And he invites us to go daily before him and lay out our needs, not to manipulate him, but to talk with him. And I don't say that because we're always going to get what we want. There's a lot that we could say about that that's beyond the scope of this sermon. But, but I want you to see in the relationship that you are in God, as the relationship the Israelites are with, with Yahweh, we go to God and give him our hopes and desires and needs, trusting that he uh, is trustworthy, that he has our best interest in mind. Okay, can you put up the first slide, Ron? We're going to keep mo moving our way through this commandment. And, and now we're, we've got the image commandment. Now let's see, okay, let's fill in. Why is this commandment so important to God? And this is the first part. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So, so not making images might have sounded a little bit strange to the Israelites. I don't think it sounds too strange to us. This maybe starts to sound a little weird, right? A jealous God. Uh, later on in the book of Exodus, the, we, read, um, we read that God actually identifies himself with the name uh, jealous. We read in this in Exodus 34, 14. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Imagine being at a singles mixture and someone comes up to you and says, Hi, I'm jealous. Like, just walk away from that person, right? That is not going to go well if that's how somebody names and identifies themselves. It's strange because we, we tend to think about jealousy as somewhat negative terms, I think. I don't know what, what pops up in your mind when you think of jealousy. I'll, I'll tell you what mine. The image that comes to my mind when I think of jealousy is the image of fire. Okay, for me, jealousy is a hot emotion. When I, when I look back at my life and, and think about moments when I felt jealousy, it, it feels to me like something is burning in me. And, and what, what can happen, and has happened, is that that jealousy, that hot emotion, actually becomes destructive, right? This is like the extreme end of things, but I mean, how we, it's not all that uncommon to read a story in the news that starts out with a jilted lover, that then talks about jealousy, and ends with murder, right? I mean, that's, that's the most extreme, but what we see is that the, the feeling, the emotion of jealousy actually can lead to destruction, right? The person, uh, it, might, it might be born out of love, but actually at the end, it's the destruction of the person that it leads to. But flip this around, okay? We've got problems with jealousy, but flip this around with me for a minute. Imagine a marriage, okay, a relationship in which two people have committed themselves uh, fully and exclusively to each other, and all of a sudden, there's an outside threat to that covenantal relationship. Okay, there's some other, per there's this fear, this fear of, of covenantal relationship that involves two people, 
and now there's a threat from the outside. Okay? Now one of the spouses is inching towards a, a path that's going to lead to infidelity. Okay? They're inching closer to breaking that covenant. Okay? And imagine with me, the other person sees this happening and is like, meh. That's a problem, right? It's a problem. If one spouse is moving towards having an affair, that, that's a problem in itself. But it's also a problem if the other spouse is like, meh, I'm not really moved by that. Like if, I was, if, I, if you were meeting with me in marriage counseling, I was talking to you, I would have, the first thing I would think is love has gone cold in this relationship. Love has somehow maybe long since died in this relationship. That, that the threat to the marriage does not ignite the jealousy. Yahweh, remember, he's entering at Mount Sinai into this exclusive relationship with the Israelites. Yahweh, and you've got to see this to understand it, Yahweh is totally committing Yahweh's self to the Israelites. Okay? And now, just like a marriage helps us understand this, now that Yahweh has committed Yahweh to uh, is the Israelites, he's asking for the same in return, just like a marriage. And the only appropriate response to, from, by God to infidelity to uh, the Israelites moving to an open relationship is jealousy, is to act in a way that protects that relationship. Okay, God, this is what we're learning in this, God will not tolerate rival gods. And that is really good news. Okay, if, if that were not the case, if God were to say, you know, I want you, you know, to the Israelites or to us today, I really want you to worship. I really do. Like that's, that would mean a lot if we could have this exclusive relationship. But you know, I'm also okay with you having some relationships on the side, right? I'm okay with you having uh, some fun with some gods uh, from time to time. That would be alarming to us, right? It'd be, it would mean that God's love for us is kind of like, meh, kind of lukewarm, kind of tepid, kind of not, not a lot of fire there. The only appropriate response to worshiping something else uh, by God is jealousy. God's, this, is, this is where this gets to be really beautiful and moving. God's love for you and for me is not lukewarm. It's not tepid. It's like burning fire. Like God's love for us is almost frightening in how strong and powerful it is. Our God is a jealous God. Okay? And here's the thing. Our jealousy, it might have its roots in love, but like as I said, there's all kinds of um, destructive ingredients that are mixed in with that batter. Right? There's if I'm jealous, okay, it might be love, but also might be my insecurity. It might be selfishness. It might be envy. There's all things that are mixed into that batter that are not good with that jealousy. But that's not God. Okay, God is not an insecure lover. God's not a selfish lover. God burns with desire to be in relationship with you. Do you feel that? Do you feel that God has a burning desire to be in relationship with you? a fiery desire, a jealous desire to be in relationship with you. He will not tolerate rivals. That is good news. He wants us. He wants an exclusive relationship. We start, okay, God is a trustworthy God. We're revealing the character of God. God is trustworthy and God is jealous, but it's a good kind of jealousy. Okay, let's keep going. Commandment continues. Punish, you can put, I think I've got this slide. Yeah, thank you, Ron. All right. Punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. All right, someone out there is like, okay, I'm a little bit more on board with the, the whole jealousy maybe being good news, but this is really, 
Weird, right? My grandfather, he cheated on his taxes 50 years ago, and now I'm getting punished for it, right? And that's what it sounds like to me. Like, all of you are starting to think about, like, oh, man, what did my grandparents do uh, that's led to this? What do we do with this? Well, a couple things. We need to read this in the context of the rest of Scripture. I mean, that's always a good, just you need to read this verse, but also see what else in the canon of Scripture is saying. And one of the verses we have is from Deuteronomy 24, 16, that we also need to read alongside this. I think there's another slide. Okay, it says, I'll read it for you. It says, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Listen to this. Each will die for their own sin. Okay, this is just later on in, in, in the the Torah, Deuteronomy. And so we've got these kind of things that seem to be in tension with each other. In Exodus, it seems like the, ch- the children are paying uh, for the sins of the parents. And then, but then Deuteronomy, it's, it's very clear that the child, that each person will die for their own sin. Okay, so we're, at least we know more is going on here than just, uh, than just what we read here, uh, what it sounds like on the surface. We also need to read the, the cultural and historical context here. We need to understand what was this, the context this command was given. And and today in our, in our country, like, it'd be pretty unusual to find uh, four generations living under the same roof, okay? Four generations living together. That would be uh, me living with my parents, uh, my kids, and then my grandparents. That, that, you could probably find that in our country, but it would be, it'd be much more or less, less common. But at the time, this wouldn't have been completely unusual to have four generations under one roof, okay? So think about this. Think about this. Four generations all living in one house, one kind of multiple tents together, and think about if, if the head of the household is, is just dishonest or is a drunkard or abandons the family, is belligerent, is worshiping multiple gods, you can, you can fill in with whatever, lots of things. Okay, here's my question for you. Will, if the head of the household is doing this, will this have an effect on the rest of the household? Yeah, yes, I think it will. Okay, and I'm not talking about like years down the road. Like if there's four generations living in that tent, the sins of the parent will have an effect on each one of those generations right then, okay? Absolutely. They're gonna, the, the, the children and the grandchildren are going to begin to deal with the consequences of the sin of the head of the household. Um, now, let's, let's see if we can bring this a little bit closer to home. Okay, it's probably, like I said, it's probably rare to have four generations living under the same roof, but, but let me ask you this. Do children deal with the consequences uh, the fallout of their parents' sin. Absolutely. Right, that is just axiomatic. Absolutely. Here, here's what, what, what God and the Bible understand so clearly. There is a corporate nature to sin. There is collateral damage to sin. Okay, we, we tend to think about sin as, in very private terms. Okay, so, so I sin and this sin is between me and God and so I got to go to God for forgiveness and deal with that and that's kind of dealt with. That is not the way sin works, okay? When I sin, my sin affects me for sure. My sin affects all those who are around me, especially those who are living with me. But here's the sobering thing. That sin, the consequences of sin, it has a a tendency to move down the generations. Okay, sometimes sometimes it's, it's the actual sin. But even if it's not the actual sin, it's the fallout from the sin, okay? So say, for example, it's not that um, a child will necessarily engage in the same sinful behavior as the parent, um, but they will for sure deal with the fallout of that sin. So if a child is, is physically or emotionally abused by a parent, they, 
they, they can break that cycle. They don't have to repeat that sin. But will that child deal with the fallout from that abuse? Absolutely. Okay? To some degree, that child will likely deal with that for the rest of their lives. So he, here's, here's what us mothers and fathers need to hear. It's a sobering word. Like, you cannot live in violation of God's commandments and not expect those closest to you to experience the effect from the sin. Okay, let me say that again. Mothers and fathers, myself included, we cannot break God's commandments, live in sin, and not, not expect that to affect our children and our grandchildren. I recently watched a documentary called The Work. And it's a, it's a documentary that's set inside a, a chapel, a Folsom, a Folsom prison, so a maximum security prison, notorious prison in California. And the film, what it does is it, it films a four-day group therapy retreat called The Inside Circle. And so at this, in this Folsom uh, prison chapel, there's both convicts that are within the prison, incarcerated, and then there's also non-prisoners, like who come from the outside to participate in this therapy. And so there's these pretty normal-looking guys. It's all, it's all men. Uh, there's a bartender and a, and a museum associate and a teaching assistant. Like, there's some guys from the outside that, that look a lot like us. They have stories like us. And then they're mixed in with these, you know, convicts that are part of gangs, that are part of, that are incarcerated for murder, so that, you know, don't look like a lot of us. But during these group therapy sessions, what the men do is they take turns delving into their past. They're on this kind of quest to confront uh, and deal with these uh, suppressed emotions and demons that have dogged and dragged them down. And, and just a warning, if you go home and watch this movie, like, be warned. I mean, it's, the language is not good, but also it is just gut-wrenching, and it is very uncomfortable, okay? Because you are witnessing men confront emotions that have been bottled up for years and years and years, and it comes out in very powerful ways. But here's what stood out to me. Basically, every one of these men, whether they were from the outside or from the inside, convict or non-prisoner, again and again, as these men delved in their past, they confronted either an absent or an emotionally withholding or a tyrannical father. Okay? I don't think, I don't, I don't, I don't think most of us today sitting in these pews are at risk of incarceration because of the sins of our parents, sins of our fathers or our mothers. But you better believe our pews right now are filled with people dealing with the fallout of their parents' sin. Who, guess what? We're dealing with the fallout of their parents' sin. Who were dealing with the fallout of their parents' sin to the third and the fourth generation. You don't need the Bible to tell you that children pay for the sins of their parents. You know it yourself. If you haven't experienced it yourself, you have surely seen it yourself. Okay, if that's the reality, what do we do with that reality? What do we do with the reality of intergenerational sin and the consequences of that sin? Well, let me offer a few thoughts. First, you can put up the slide here. You've got to take it on and off as you see appropriate. Well, first, fathers and mothers, confess your sins to your children. Okay, I'm not, I'm not talking about going to your child and saying like, like, telling them every mistake you made as a parent, how you were not a perfect parent. Trust me, they, they know that. <laughs> they know that. They don't need to hear, your kids don't need to hear every mistake you made growing up. Okay, what I'm talking about is confessing sin to your children. You know they're dealing with the fallout of that sin. Okay? This could mean neglect. It could be dishonesty. 
It could be that you held back your love and attention. Okay, there's some obvious ones. There's probably some less obvious ones. Okay, in the, in the context of this passage, really the sin that's happening is that, is that the, the head of the household, the parents are worshiping idols. Right? That's not really abuse. It's not absent father. It, it's the head of the household putting other gods before Yahweh. It's idol worship. Right? Like fathers and mothers, like you cannot put something else before God and not expect there to be consequences. I don't care if that's sports. I don't care if that's your hobbies. I don't care if that's your job. I don't care if that's your spouse. Anytime you put something before God, there will be consequences. Your children will be affected by that. And we got to hear that because it doesn't matter what the sin is. It's going to affect your children, even if they don't recognize it's affecting them. Okay, so, so if you're thinking, you know, I, I, I know, I know my children have been affected by my sin, but I'm not really sure exactly what that sin is. Here's, here's what my counsel to you is. Like, you're going to have to do some talking to God. You're going to have to do some opening up to God to reveal that. And you're going to have to do some talking with your children. And when I say that, I don't, well, here's what I don't mean. I don't mean saying, going up to your child and saying, God has forgiven me and therefore you need to forgive me. And you just need to move on. Okay? That will not help the situation. That's not the way it works. I'm saying going to that child and saying something like, I want to acknowledge to you, I want to confess to you that I recognize you are dealing with the fallout of my sin. And I want to tell you because I'm grieving because of that. And I know this isn't going to make your pain or, or the fallout that you're dealing with go away, but I need to ask your forgiveness. And if you're like, there is no way I can do that, think about what it would have meant for your own father or your own mother to have done that to you. Right? Sin is intergenerational. You might be saying, there is no way I could do that to my kid. Imagine what it would have meant to you if your father or your mother had done that to you. Would it have made it all go away? No. But it would have started a process of healing. There's a good chance the sin you're dealing with is a sin your father dealt with or your mother dealt with. Fathers and mothers, confess your sin to your children. It's not too late. It's not too late. It's not too late. On the flip side of that, children, forgive your fathers and mothers. I do not want to be trite with this or flippant. The work of confronting the sins of your parents is hard and complicated and painful work. Right? That's what you see so clearly come out in the documentary, The Work. I mean, you see when these men delve down and they begin to confront the pain, it is brutal. It manifests itself in, in just this raw energy coming out that they've got to take seven strong men to just to suppress this guy as this rage just comes out of them. Confronting the sins of your fathers and your mothers is hard. Forgiving them is even harder. Okay, I'm not trying to gloss over this, pretend like this isn't hard and painful, and maybe work that seems to you almost impossible. Children, you've got to do the work of forgiving your parents. You've got to do this because if you profess to be a follower of Jesus, you have been commanded by your Lord to do it. It's a non-negotiable part of being a follower of Jesus. Forgiveness is not optional for followers of Jesus. But listen to me. You've got to do this for yourself. If you refuse to forgive your parent, whether that parent is alive or dead, that is going to stunt your own growth. That is going to stop you from being able to help break that cycle of sin. Parents, it is not too late 
to ask forgiveness for your children. Children, it is not too late to forgive your parents. That's the first thing. Second thing. Name the sins of your parents. What do I mean here? First of all, because you suffer the fallout of the sins of your parents does not mean that you are responsible for those sins. I think that's probably, hopefully, pretty obvious, but I want to say that again. You are not responsible for the sins of your fathers or your mothers. That's really important. You're not responsible. But here's what's also important. You are responsible, um, you are responsible for learning from the sins of your parents. You're responsible for making sure that those sins of your mothers and fathers do not become your sins, that you do not perpetuate these sins, that you don't then now hand them down to another generation of children, that you, that you work to break that cycle. And a big part of breaking the cycle is naming the sins of your fathers and your mothers, especially, um, uh, you know, I think a lot of for your older generation, I don't think this is much of a problem with the younger generation, but for, for you older generation, which is most of us, right, this is not really natural, okay? I've noticed, and I've seen this, many. the older generation, like, there's this tendency to kind of keep sin hidden, to not talk about it, right? It, it, maybe it's a source of shame for the family, uh, and, and what we do is we find out, we, we think of all kinds of reasons and excuses why we've got to keep that sin contained, why we can't let that out. Because, you know, if that sin were to get out, I mean, think about the way it would damage the faith of the children or the grandchildren. Think about how it would destroy our family or dishonor that person. These are not good reasons. These are not good reasons. For one thing, the sin that you're trying to hide is very likely not hidden. I've said this before. I'll say it again. You think this sin is hidden, very very unlikely that it's hidden. Very likely that it's already known and it's bubbling under the surface. And by you refusing to name that sin, you're making it harder for healing to happen. Remember, what, what is the text showing us? Sin is intergenerational. Sin has a tendency to pass from one generation to the next, meaning you are likely to be tempted by the same sins that your mothers and your fathers were tempted by. And one of the first and most important steps to breaking that cycle is to name it, is to get it out in the open, is to talk about it. To deny, to deny that this sin is, is moving through the generations, it doesn't help anything. If anything, it just helps these patterns continue of the families. Okay, that's the second thing. Children, name the sins of your fathers and mothers. Number three, ask God to release you from the bondage of the sins of your parents. I know we've gone to you know, kind of a dark place here. We've got to see the good news here because there's some really, really good news shining through here. Because here's the good news. What is true of your parents doesn't have to be true of you. Let me say that again because that's good news for a lot of us. What is true of your parents doesn't have to be true of you. You can break free from the sin that was handed down to you. You can break free from sin even that has traveled generations down the line. And that is good news. That's at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That, that, that as we come to recognize our own sin, as we come to recognize our own brokenness, we have a Lord that we can go to and throw ourselves at the mercy and grace of that Lord and say, break this cycle. How do you know? How do you know? How do you know you can, you can do this? How do you know you can go up to Jesus and throw yourself and ask for mercy? Because look at God's character. Look at what the passage is teaching us about God's character. God is trustworthy. 
Okay? Just like the Israelites were rescued, you were rescued, you were bought at a great price. You are God's treasure, you are holy, God's holy people. God is also madly and jealously in love with you. God wants all of you. Okay? God doesn't want part of you. God doesn't want to share you. God wants all of you. And therefore, God wants to eradicate the sin in your life. Because guess what? That sin is holding you back from giving yourself fully to God. And that's what God wants because God is jealously and madly in love with you. We got one more part of God's character in this passage that we've got to see. It's easy to miss. Look at the last line of the commandment. I don't think I gave a slide, but if you've got your Bible open, look at it. Because this is the one we almost always miss. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, one of the, the weirdest parts of this passage is how out of balance God's scales are. God is completely unfair when it comes to justice and it comes to mercy. Like, think about it in your minds like, a, like Lady Justice, right? That, that statue and she's, she's blindfolded and she's got a sword and she's got these scales in her hand and they're perfectly balanced. Those are not God's scales. God's scales are not perfectly balanced. On the one side, we have sin that's affecting three or four generations. On the other side, for those who love God, we've got a thousand generations. Do you see how unbalanced these scales are? You know how long a thousand generations are? That, that's longer than recorded human history. You say a thousand human gener- you see a thousand generations, you might about as well be saying forever. We've got forever on one side, three or four generations on the other side. Like, why can you go to God and throw yourself at the mercy of God? Because that's who God is. That's his character. His character is to be merciful. He is trustworthy. He is madly in love with you. His scales are out of balance. They lean so much harder towards mercy than they do justice. Thanks be to God for that. God is not about making children pay for their parents' sin. No, God's heart is about breaking the cycle of sin. God's heart is about eradicating sin from our lives. And that is good news because I don't care what kind of messed up sins you were handed to by your parents. God, through the power of the Spirit, has the power to break that cycle. He has the power to break you from that bondage sin, to release you from those things that have shackled you, that you inherited. It is not fair to deal with the consequences of someone else's sin. And neither was the cross. The cross was not fair. Because at the cross, Jesus, though he was perfect, though he was without, he had done nothing. He bore the consequences. And guess what? Jesus didn't just bear the consequences of two or three or four generations. Jesus bore the consequences of all the generations. That, my friends, is weird. And that is the God we worship. 